It's Friday, October 31st, 2014, from Slate, It's the Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Halloween, the one day when the guy with this particular voice modulation disorder can be embraced. Or is it the day he most avoids? I have serious points to make about the Brazilian economy. I have no interest in that which is spooky. So I came across another phenomena of this time of year, the PSL, the pumpkin spice latte. Yeah, when I say I came across this, I know you know about it. But this thing, this is important to the U.S. economy. Starbucks has reported a 10% increase in fiscal fourth quarter sales, a period when the coffee giant's results benefit from early demand for the pumpkin spice latte. They price this into the stock. Wall Street knows about it. Pumpkin spice latte, moving big numbers. And I can figure this out. Does it taste good? Yeah, yeah, it tastes good. But it's just that people these days like making a fuss about limited time only food. Tweetable food, right? Peeps, oh yeah, peeps are finally back. McRib for a limited time only. Oh, that's so awesome. You got to invent a viral food and it's going to go viral, not because it's good food, but just because it could go viral. And that's what's going on with the pumpkin spice latte. Here, Fortune Magazine interviewed Cliff Burroughs, U.S. Group President of Starbucks. Our best-selling seasonal favorite, without doubt, is pumpkin spice latte. It's been in our lineup for more than 10 years. This is our 11th year. And during that time, we've sold more than 200 million pumpkin spice lattes. So this year, we expect to sell more than 20 million. 20 million pumpkin spice lattes a year. And the average cup of coffee, Starbucks coffee, is 316 ounces. Now, it's, well, the big one's 20 ounces. So if you figure that, 20 ounces times 20 million pumpkin spice lattes, it's more than 3 million gallons of pumpkin spice latte. How big is that? Well, let's take fracking. They point out that hydraulic fracturing of horizontal shale gas may typically require 3 million gallons of water. Now, instead of this water being displaced, which is scary for the environment, imagine if it was pumpkin spice latte. Maybe that's a little more comforting. Or there was a big storm recently uh, on the East Coast, and there was sewage that was untreated at the Patapsco Water Treatment Plant. This is near Baltimore. Three million gallons of sewage was released. Very, very disturbing to the locals. But what if we could tell you it was three million gallons of pumpkin spice latte? That's a little more comforting, isn't it? The largest spill of oil from a U.S. pipeline was one and a half million gallons. That's only half the amount of pumpkin spice latte that's being drunk this season. That's dangerous for the environment. Might it create zombies? No, I happen to be the Sierra Club spokesman. For obvious reasons, I do most of my communicating via text. On the show today, a post-prudence impact statement. Can't we all just get along or at least live together? And speaking of not getting along, we'll take a traipse around the country as we light upon some of the great debate moments of 2014. But now, speaking of debates, speaking of this election, it's Raihan Salam. So I'm going to concede two things. Well, 
I'll definitely concede that the president is not popular. And it looks really, really likely that the Republicans are going to win the Senate. So let's talk about what happens next and what that means. Raihan Salam is the author of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream. He's a columnist for Slate. Hello, Raihan. Hello, Mike. So I'll quote Rob Portman. He was on Meet the Press. Chuck Todd was asking, so what's the difference with 51 Republicans? Portman. Getting stuff done. What, what, really? your, what your polling shows. I mean, I just, you know, there's absolutely. a lot of skepticism that anything's no, going to get absolutely. done. Absolutely. The only way things get done is we change the majority. Washington needs to get its act together and start passing stuff. If you get a Republican majority, Chuck, yeah. it will get the president to the table yeah. and we'll begin to solve some of these big problems. I, that's I, that's, I that's, that's what people want. Is he right? I do not think he's right. I think he's setting up the wrong framework because realistically, Republicans can't get all that much done even if they hold the Senate. Uh, because there are deep policy disagreements between Republicans in Congress and the president. And I think that, unfortunately, we're setting up very high expectations that are going to lead to a lot of frustration on the part of Republicans and conservatives nationally. In a way, what you'd want to do is you know, run up the score now, get as many Republicans in office, and have them pursue a smart, modest, limited agenda of laying out what their governing agenda might be rather than selling people on this idea that they're going to be able to get a lot done while President Obama is still in the White House. Yeah. Now, I just want to ask you about what to read into the results if, as most of the polls predict, the Senate goes Republican, the House goes even more Republican. Charles Krauthammer today in the uh, Washington Post, election day looking like a referendum on Obama's long list of disasters. And he talks about the Obamacare rollout, the Veterans Affairs scandal, the pratfalls of the once lionized Secret Service, Ebola. In my opinion, what he's done is list a bunch of things that he is critical of the president about and paired this with the fact that the Republicans are going to win and that the president is unpopular. All those things are true, but I'm not sure I'm seeing causation. I'm not sure I'm seeing a referendum. And especially with Ebola, the latest polls show that the public supports him on Ebola more than any other policy. Yeah, I mean, I think that this stuff is noise. Uh, in 2010, for example, a lot of people thought, hey, it's this Tea Party energy and enthusiasm yeah. uh, that is the reason why Republicans did well. Well, you know, if you didn't have that, I'm pretty sure Republicans would have fared well, uh, you know, given the state of the economy, the unemployment rate and what have you. And similarly, this time around, you know, you just have a very favorable map for Republicans. Uh, and also the midterm electorate tends to be more favorable to Republicans. It's older, it's whiter, et cetera. Yeah, but what the I likely voters is, yeah. are more likely, the likely voters come from Republican ranks. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that the other dimension of this, what I was hoping for, and what I've seen a little bit of, is seeing some Republican Senate candidates who are just doing a smarter job of talking about issues and perhaps if we're lucky, laying the groundwork for what the debate might be like in 2016. At least some Republicans are going by a different playbook. They're talking about a variety of thorny issues differently. They're modernizing their approach. They're understanding the ways the country has changed in a good way. Yeah, no one stepped in it like Todd Akin, and that was explicitly, here's how to talk about women's issues, and I haven't seen too many huge blow-ups. But what else? What is the thing that you look at and say, ah, this is refreshing, this could have legs? Well, one very promising candidate is unfortunately a guy who will definitely not win, and that's Ed Gillespie, the Republican who's running in Virginia. And he's actually said, look, 
you know, like most conservatives, I want to repeal Obamacare, but I have a proposal for replacing it. And the proposal he has for replacing it is, you know, not perfect in my view, but actually pretty darn good. Or also a better example and a more familiar example, perhaps, is Cory Gardner, the Republican running in Colorado. And he's talked about how, uh, you know, it would be very good for women to make contraceptives available over the counter, making the birth control pill available over the counter. And that's something that, you know, is a very workaday, straightforward thing that would make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. And it just seems to me to be a better way of talking about this issue that has tripped up a lot of conservatives in the past. Yeah. And I think that we always in the political class will look at a race, even if it's an extremely close race. And because we've been paying attention to it or because it seems dramatic, we'll use words like referendum or mandate. And one way I can almost prove this is no one ever talks about races where people win by 25% is the huge referendum or mandate races, right? It's always like, well, Colorado is either a referendum. I was reading Kim Strassel in the uh, journal talking about, oh, the Democrats were saying that Colorado and the West meant one thing when it went blue with Udall. But now that Gardner's probably going to win, this is the opposite of the referendum. And I just look at this and say, no, it's a close state that could go either way. The referenda states are place like California, New York, where Cuomo and Brown are up by 20 something points. But what do you, what do you think about uh, our labeling uh, results as mandates or referendum? You know, I'm not sure I agree with you mm -hmm. entirely. So, for example, if I'm looking at Cuomo, uh, you know, to me, it's just a sign that uh, you have a Republican Party that is moribund, uh, <laughs> that is under-resourced. Whereas, you know, if you think about the Democratic primary in which Cuomo actually fared quite poorly against two, uh, you know, challengers who, again, didn't have a lot of resources, weren't running for a terribly long time. I think that actually Cuomo is a guy with a glass jaw, and I think he's very lucky that, uh, you know, he didn't have uh, a billionaire let's say, running against him or someone who would be able to do something. Right, like in New York, I don't think the referendum is pro Cuomo. I think it's just liberal. Right. I think that's yeah, the yeah. referendum. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no, absolutely, absolutely. And to the Colorado point, I mean, I think the thing is this, you know, there were people who believe that Colorado was going from a so-called purple state to being a solidly blue state for a couple of reasons, one of which is that it's a state with a lot of uh, college-educated white liberals. And it's also a state with a large and growing Latino population, which is becoming a bigger slice of the electorate. And so it's actually pretty interesting, I think, if that state goes Republican this time around. You know, it actually is an open question of how competitive a state it is. Now, that doesn't mean it's some kind of, you know, larger permanent referendum. I think you're right. It just means that, well, the state's actually competitive. But that was something that was in doubt. Uh, you know, there are plenty of smart people who thought, well, Colorado is slipping out of that competitive zone into an uncompetitive zone, uh, you know, being a good thing for Democrats. And so it actually is encouraging for folks on the right that, hey, wait a second, you know, we can still fight it out. We can still win it here. I think maybe if there is a referendum, it's not based on one race. It's based on, for instance, a lot of governor's races where governors who've made tough choices about, say, public union pensions might eke out close elections. You know, you got Daniels in Indiana, you got Walker in Wisconsin, you got in Rhode Island, a Democrat who took on the unions. I think that might be important and notable. Uh, you know why I think it's important and notable? Because it speaks to whether or not people have found an effective way to talk about these issues. And so if you've cottoned onto that right message, what it means is that, wait a second, the, with the war on women, some conservatives are hoping that if a guy like Cory Gardner wins, it means that, uh, you know, when uh, Senator Udall was trying to use that war on women rhetoric against him, it just didn't take this time because people have learned, they've evolved, 
and they're getting us to the next stage. But the thing is, well, maybe they haven't. Maybe that old playbook is actually still very effective. We don't know. So that's something we might learn uh, from the outcome of an election like this. Raihan Salam, author of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream, Slate columnist. Thank you, Raihan. Thank you, Mike. And now the latest developments in Living Longer, brought to you by Prudential Financial. Imagine you wanted to have kids, but you knew you had a good chance of passing on a serious inherited disease. Now imagine you could do something to make sure you didn't pass on your bad DNA. So you'd do that, right? Of course you would. But wait, suppose the technique to help your unborn child involved using three people's DNA, yours, your spouse's, and a third person you don't know, but whose genetic material could fix the problem. This is possible right now. But the ethics are complicated, especially when you realize these so-called three-person embryos don't just treat illness. They could also be used to create children with desirable traits. Yeah, we're talking about designer babies. If you'd like to read more about this and other fascinating longevity research, visit slate.com slash living longer. The Living Longer Project is sponsored by Prudential. Emily Yaffe is the author of the Dear Prudy column in which she dispenses advice, wisdom, recipes. Okay, no recipes. Well, actually, maybe recipes. Recipes of lives lived well, or at least mistakes confronted. But what happens next? This here, right now, this is what happens next. We call these the post-Prudy impact statements. Emily Yaffe is here. Hello, Emily. Hi. Hi. What do you got for me today? Okay. We have a letter from a woman calls herself Two Families, One Mortgage. Uh, she and her sister are very close in age, are very close, period. Right now, they live in the same apartment building. They're both married, have young kids. Everyone gets along great. It's kind of like being in a compound with lots of other strangers around. They live in a very expensive part of the country. And the letter writer's husband said, hey, you know what? Why don't the four of us buy a house? Because we could get a lot more house than any two of us could get. We can exchange childcare, cooking, everything. Let's live like Mormons. And Or the Iroquois who believed in the longhouse <laughs> and were a matrilineal society. But I, I digress. Go ahead. Were you an anthropology major? <laughs> Just love the okay. Iroquois. Okay. So the four of them are really excited. The kids all love each other. And she was writing to me because everyone she's mentioned this to said, are you all out of your minds? So she wrote to me. My answer was, wow, that sounds like living hell. And I think you should do it because they're different from everyone else who would say, I would want to kill within a week. I mean, I, I suggested they all go away on like a two-week vacation mm -hmm. and see how it feels. And I said they need to see a lawyer and get all sorts of, you know, if someone gets divorced, if someone has to move for a job, et cetera, then they need some kind of social rules. Hey, look, I'm going to have a dinner party and not invite you guys, mm -hmm. et cetera. But as you pointed out, Mike, through most of human history, People have always done this. Now, once they got some cash and could run away from their families, they did. But these two want to run back. Well, let's see what she did. We're going to give a call. I don't give anything away, but either this letter writer will answer the phone or maybe her sister or her uncle <laughs> or her cousin. 
Hello. Hello. Is this someone who sometimes goes by the title Two Families, One Mortgage? Indeed, yes. Mm, interesting. And uh, this is Mike Pasca. I'm with uh, Slate's The Gist. This is Emily Offie. She is Dear Prudence. I believe you two have corresponded. Say hello to Emily, if you would. Yes, hello. Hi, two families. So I'm here with my sister. Do you want me to... Hello? Yeah, hi. Who's this? Uh, are you one half of the two families, one mortgage? Yes. Okay, we'll call you Sister A. Sister A, you will be the letter writer. And Sister B, you will be the sister. Okay? All right. Sister A... Is Sister B just visiting you right now? She, yeah. Well, yes, she's visiting my apartment, yes. What's the living <laughs> situation? Well, we did not move into the house after all. Interesting. Why not? But we still live two floors apart. Okay, but why didn't you move in together? Why didn't you go f- ahead with this mortgage situation? Well, we kind of have two sides of that story. All right, so, you go first, and then I'm Sister, Sister B. A. Yes. I'm kind of the math nerd. I do stats for a living. So my approach was to run the numbers and try to figure out if we could truly afford the house. And as it turns out, even with two families and four income earners, we cannot. That's how expensive D.C. is. (laughs) So I said, well, why bother even touring the house? And Sister B said, well, obviously, that's where we start, by touring the house to see if we like it. So Mm -hmm. Sister B, do you want to tell your side of the story? Yes. I was hyped to go visit the house, Um, and we had a long debate where my sister said it's kind of like going boutique wedding dress shopping when you know you're just going to get your dress at David's Bridal. Why get your hopes up? But I said, I can't make a decision if I haven't actually seen the house. So my husband and I went and actually brought our 18-month-old who just went to town. I don't think he's ever seen that many rooms, and they Mm -hmm. had it all laid out and perfect fashion. They had an open coloring book on the floor of one of the kids' rooms. And we fell in love, but actually came to the same conclusion as Sister A, that even apart from the money, the things we were hoping to get out of a house still didn't exist. Like there was no yard. We were essentially stuck with some of the same challenges we have in apartment living, just with a huge mortgage on top of it. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question that might be hard because it's based on subconscious. But do you think subconsciously, it wasn't just these very tangible good reasons, but a niggling problem was the unconventionality of the arrangement? Might that have played a role too? Sister A, you go first. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm the more conventional sister. So I was nodding and, sorry, Sister B was, um, (laughs) was sort of making a skeptical face. But, yeah, I mean, I guess I feel like we've got a good thing going now, and I was a little bit worried about risking it. Even though it was her idea. I got it. Well, my husband's husband's idea. idea. My husband's idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's insane that in any part of the country, four income earners can't buy a house. Wow. Second of all, um, I... I just, we happen to live in the same part of the country. My husband and I just became empty nesters. So would the four of you like to move in with us? (laughs) Actually, yes. You know, I'm a good cook. (laughs) She's a great cook. (laughs) We've needed someone to work all the stats on the post-pretty impact statements, so you could do it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Is your dream dead, or are you still looking at the real estate section every Sunday, or what? Well, you know, we talked to the real estate agent at the, when, when we visited for an open house, and um, 
what I told her is we need to save a little bit more first. And that's what we're thinking. What she responded when I said that was, or you could just have your parents buy it for you, <laughs> which really made me laugh. <laughs> and so, um, so, but I think actually plan A, just saving a little bit more and keeping, but, you know, it's going to be years, I think, before we can actually afford a down payment even. So, yes. Yeah, and I think one version of the dream, which I don't know how this happens, is to find a duplex where we would have two distinct houses but share our front yard, backyard. That kind of gets at all the things we really like, but we also maintain our personal space. I think my whole family grew up in Brooklyn essentially with that arrangement. It was called Canarsie yeah. in 1950. <laughs> um, but they yeah. can't afford that now. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's interesting how the real estate bubble forestalls what would have been an interesting social arrangement. Just because I'm a guy, tell me about the husbands. The husbands are like, yeah, totally. Or do you think they're like, I guess. Give me your best description. Well, it was my husband's idea. Mm-hmm. He's the one who found the listing. He brought it to us. He was really excited about it. So, and you know, and we haven't mentioned our parents. Our parents actually just live about two miles away. And when they moved here, again, my husband was like looking at real estate listings, trying to find a place that would be near us. And even when they moved two miles away, he said, that's too far. Like, I don't, I want you guys to be nearby so we can all be together. So he's, he's very done about it. your husband. <laughs> uh, and how many, how many kids are there among you, between you, within you? Not within you, but among or between you. Well... <laughs> Three at the moment. Yeah. I think you hit something, yeah, maybe. Mike. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Is Sister A or B yeah. expecting? Uh, B. Well, congratulations, <laughs> Sister B. Thank you. Well, as I said, it's kind of a shame that we wouldn't get to not only uh, see this happen, but send a documentary crew there. I know. We agree, yeah. We'll let you know if we do it. <laughs> Please, let me know totally. if there's any affordable living situation where you live. <laughs> that would be a heartening development. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so your advice, where I think you're insane, but you should do it. What are the rules for that advice? What are the rules for when you say that sort of thing? That I know everyone is not me, although they should be, obviously. <laughs> uh, but listen to them. They're so great. They have such a good time together. I think this is something that... Uh, would have worked and maybe, you know, if they win the lottery, my God, it's just that's so depressing. You can't, uh, four people can't buy a house. Well, Emily, I want to thank you. This was an excellent post-prudence impact statement. Even though nothing changed, just the optimism there shone through. So thanks very much, Emily. My pleasure. They played the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It got on in a flash. They played the match. They played the monster And now the spiel, racing to the finish line. So many elections, so little time. So little time to hear the really stupid things said by our candidates and the people who support them. It's weird, right? Like if I'm online at Starbucks, I'm not going to tell you what I drink. Initials are on PSL. There's like a nice guy next to me. Some nice guy takes my order. If I'm on the subway, a lady will get up and let my little kids sit down. Everyone's nice. Everyone I talk to, most of them are pretty nice. They're pretty normal. Then you run for office and you expose yourself as a total maniac or at least a nudnik, a nudniak. To New Hampshire, vying to represent the Granite State in Congress is Marilinda Garcia. Asked to describe her opponent, incumbent Annie Custer, State Representative Garcia offered this assessment. If one word characterizes Ann Custer's time in Congress, it's been absence. 
Democrat Annie Custer, she's just not there. Actually, records show that Annie Custer missed fewer votes than a typical member of the U.S. Congress. However, you know who missed a whole ton of votes? One, Marilinda Garcia. She missed more than a quarter of the votes this year in the State House. She missed more than half the votes in 2010. She misses more votes than an average representative. I get it. New Hampshire State Rep volunteer position and not every vote could be excused. By the way, an excused absence for a vote is an actual thing they issue in New Hampshire. What's a good excuse? A cold, Yom Kippur, grandma's visiting. So how do they define an excused absence? Let me read this to you. Absences are excused if legislators call House Clerk Karen Wadsworth's office either before or within a day of the vote to say they can't make it due to an illness or important business. Well, what's important business? Let me read this to you. Legislators are allowed to determine their own standards for business that requires an absence. So all she had to say was, yeah, it was really important I not be there. Does wanting to be embarrassed in a run for Congress, does that count as important business? I guess not. We have just learned a lot about New Hampshire attendance rules. On to North Carolina, where a guy named Clay Aiken is running for the House of Representatives. It's funny because that's the same name as the dude from American Idol. Oh my God, it's the dude from American Idol. His opponent, incumbent Renee Elmers, couldn't resist. Almost as if, as an entertainer, uh, you believe that you can just go in with a song and dance and, you know, change the minds of our military leaders. I think she showed restraint. Renee Elmers could have zinged Clay Aiken even more. Under the Obama administration, for too long, the American worker has been idle. Or, I know you know the lyrics to Brother Can You Spare a Dime. Unfortunately, too many Carolinians are learning them too. Or, I know your debut album went gold. Unfortunately for the Tar Heel State, we're selling our gold teeth to make it through these tough times. Or, I know your recording of Bridge Over Troubled Water went to number one, but I, for one, will not lay me down when it comes to the issue of manufacturing jobs leaving the state. I think we're showing that I would be a terrible candidate, right? I would say, fine, vote for me, don't vote for me. I'm going to make a bunch of puns. On to Iowa's fourth. Steve King didn't want to debate this guy. King's leading by a ton. His opponent, Jim Maurer, is kind of a neophyte. But King said, sure, I'll do one debate. Mistake. I don't believe that they should be in, be ordered into face an unseen enemy that we don't understand, the silent killer of Ebola. I think they should be volunteers. Soldiers follow orders. This is a job that needs to be done. That's why Congressman King never volunteered for the military. Would you like to respond, Congressman? I think that um, this judgment to do this debate um, will speak for itself. That was actually honest self-criticism, and it really seems spot on. But at least the crowd was on Steve King's side. Not so for John Faust. Reading his closing remarks in a debate against Barbara Comstock for Virginia's 10th district, not connecting with everyone in the crowd. Shut up! Okay, so that's bad luck and you can't blame Faust, but here's where he may have demonstrated a lack of nimbleness. Even though he knew he had this situation on his hands, he doesn't veer away from the script. He's literally holding a script, keeps reading it, and therefore he does veer into a 12-car pileup of call and response rhetorical questions. Before you vote, ask yourself, can you trust Mark Comstock to be there for us if you're elected? Yes. 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 U.S. congressman, this guy would get eaten up as a substitute teacher. 
And last, we go to Staten Island. Here, the moderator, Errol Lewis, asks his lightning round question to Representative Michael Grimm. Uh, Mr. Grimm, what's the last book that you read? Wow, it's been a while. I haven't had time to read. <laughs> um, I think it was a Tom Clancy book. I don't okay. remember the name. <laughs> these, these are not supposed to be stumpers. And by the way, the challenger didn't offer an answer either. Uh, I'm going to say, like, when Derek Jeter retired, there were a lot of articles on him in the paper. Does that count? Errol, Errol, is the internet a book? Even like a really long Wikipedia article? No, no, it is not. So there you have it. The absent, the aching, the apoplectic, and the a-literate. America, you have your nominees. Please exercise your franchise accordingly. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi's booking tactics are to invite each show's guests to be roommates and then see who's standing by the end. Joel Meyer, managing producer of podcasts, enjoys a half-calf, no-foam, skinny soy, ginger peppermint, chai, upside-down frappuccino. But he cautions you that he has an extreme allergy to the half-calf, skinny soy, ginger peppermint, chai, upside-down frappuccino with foam and would hate for his gruesome death to be on your hands. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, decries the failed policies of the Fillmore administration. You can subscribe on iTunes, give us a listen on Stitcher. You can get the daily email at slate.com slash just email. We are on Yo, the app Yo, where you subscribe to podcast. We are on facebook.com slash slate gist. Tonight is the night. If a goblin comes to your door and you take a picture of that goblin, you put it on facebook.com slash slate gist, a prize will be yours. Or you can email us that photo of the goblin, but you can because there's not going to be a goblin. But the goblin documentation process will also take place over email, and that's the gist at slate.com. The last book I've read, well, it's kind of more than a book. It guided the pilgrims to our shores and provided the foundation for our country. It's a book that I, and millions of others like me, still look to, to lead us through the darkness. Some call it the good book, but I call it the greatest. It is Sweet Valley High number 20, Crash Landing, where Ina got in a plane accident and then she got paralyzed from the waist down and George was going to break up with her, but you can't because, you know, she's paralyzed. That's a really good book. You got to read it. Thanks for listening. This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's new Supreme Court podcast, Amicus. On this week's episode, we'll take a look at the crazy legal landscape of voter ID laws before the upcoming midterm elections. Search for Amicus in the iTunes store or visit slate.com slash podcast.